0: Who's back?
1: (laughs) For a second time this semester.
0: And this time I actually did the interview. That's right, you're talking to Aaron Bennett, one of the co-founders of Fly On The Wall Pod. It's hard to believe that in this small room just two years ago, uh, me and my co-founders, Christian and Justin, uh, came up with the idea for Fly On The Wall and here we are again, uh, back almost full circle doing one of the coolest interviews I think we've had the privilege of doing.
1: Yes, and now you can see why we kicked him off the pod is cause he talks too long. Um, I'm Abby Nichols and I'm so excited to welcome Milan Verveer to the pod this week.
0: But before we get into her bio, just a quick few quick shadows. make sure you follow us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook all at Fly on the Wall Pod. Or if you really want to be a super fan, you can shoot us an email at fly on the wall at gmail.com. So I promise we check it, it regularly.
1: Great. And now on to Milan's very impressive resume. She was special assistant to the President Clinton and Chief of Staff to Hillary Rodham Clinton back when they were in the White House from 1997 to 2000. Um, Then she moved on, became chair and co-CEO of Vital Voices for eight years, and she was appointed by Barack Obama to be the first U.S. ambassador at large for global women's issues. And this interview is so cool. And we talked to her about so many great things about women in politics and the various um, roles she played in international relations.
0: Yeah, it's it's very rare that we here at Fly on the Wall delve into international affairs. But this is, I think, one of the more substantive interviews that I've ever had the chance to do. Uh, and the fact that it hits on uh, women's equality issues, especially in a year like 2018, the midterms, when we saw the year of the woman. Uh, and women everywhere rising up to run for office, I think, could not be more relevant uh, and important to hear uh, how women can not only lead this country, but lead the world. Uh, so, hope you enjoy our interview with Milan. <music> Ambassador Milan Revere, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We're so excited to have you uh, in a very special episode. Um, Abby, here, who's co-hosting, has worked with you and your organization for the last uh, academic year, so very special to have you uh, in to talk about a lot of your work and a lot of cool things that you've done throughout your career.
2: Well, I'm really happy to be here, to be here with both of you. Uh, Abby, of course, has been very active at the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security, and it's delightful for me to have this opportunity to be on this podcast, and it's a terrific innovation that the students here have made. Thank you so much. Thank you,
1: yeah. Um, okay, so we'll just jump right into it um, with our first question. Um, so you were special assistant to President Clinton and chief of staff to HRC. So what, in your mind and your view, what was so special about the Clinton White House?
2: Well, first of all, it is an extraordinary privilege to be able to uh, uh, to work in a, a capacity where you can serve your country, and I think. All too often today, public service uh, is demeaned, but it is among the highest callings one can have. Uh, and we were always reminded, uh, on the good times and the bad times, uh, that being engaged uh, in that way, uh, working for the president, uh, working to pursue the priorities that were set out, uh, working to make a difference for the American people, was something that we should always keep in mind and never be distracted by other things. And I think. Uh, as I look back, that was one of the greatest um, experiences one could have to be able to work at that level um, to make a difference for the American people.
0: So tell us a little bit more specifically, what were you doing inside the White House? What, what did your role look like as uh, you know this dual capacity, special uh, assistant to the president, but also chief of staff to the first lady?
2: So it was a a dual role, but as Mrs. Clinton often reminded us, we all worked for the president, and we were all pursuing uh, the agenda that was laid out by the administration. Uh, but I had tasks, obviously, very specific to her portfolio. Uh, she was the first professional women, woman to uh, uh, be a first lady, right. and as you all know, it's, it's a job. Uh, but it has no job description. Uh, It is an unpaid position. It's something you only inherit by virtue of your marriage to the President of the United States. So in a capacity where she had come into a role as a professional, uh, she wanted to really contribute to making a difference. And in those very early days, one of the the key priorities was health care reform. Uh, And while health care reform in the package in which it was introduced... Uh, didn't succeed to be adopted. There were so many elements of that that were adopted. Uh, The Children's Health Insurance Program, um, the ability to ensure that medications that children were being given would be labeled appropriately for children because they were basically adult medications, uh, or issues having to do with portability of insurance. There was a whole lot that was achieved. But that issue was not just a First Lady's issue. It was an issue that was a priority for the president. Right. So we worked in a way that was very integrated. Uh, our office was integrated into the overall operations of the president. Uh, and we carried out a lot of those uh, policy priorities, but particularly those that the First Lady was very engaged in. And then, of course, she had a tremendous uh, portfolio in terms of uh, working for women's rights in the United States and overseas. And that was uh, pretty much an all-consuming uh, enterprise.
0: You read our minds. That's exactly where we're going next. So um, one of the most famous and biggest moments of the, the Clinton administration in terms of you know what Hillary Clinton was doing abroad was the 1995 Beijing World Conference on women. So everyone knows that as the moment where Hillary Clinton said women's rights are human rights, human rights are or women's rights, uh, But there's a lot that went into that whole conference, that whole speech, that whole moment that not a lot of people talk to about. So if you want to walk us through, you know, what was your role in planning for the conference and preparing for that moment, um, everything that came before and after?
2: Well, uh, it's exactly right. You know, we often see the snapshot in the news of something that uh, was happening in real time. But the reality is also that tremendous preparation has to go into something like that. Uh, and the First Lady was invited to deliver a keynote speech by the Secretary General of the UN. Uh, Madeleine Albright, at the time, was the UN ambassador, mm-hmm. a Georgetown professor, as we all know, yeah. and proud to have her here. Uh, but she, um, she headed our delegation, and we had a delegation of men and women, uh, a very representative group, Democrats, Republicans, to represent America's position on these issues that were of interest and importance to our country, certainly to the women and families in our country, but also uh, to people the world over and the role that the United States would play. But there were tremendous tensions over this. There often are over so-called women's issues. Uh, And on the right, you had those who were saying, oh, this is going to destroy the family. And on the left, you had many human rights organizations who said, well, why should the First Lady of the United States go to China after all? Right. They're a huge violator of human rights. And and the the conference was an international conference that just happened to be in China. It wasn't to condone right. China's policies. And in fact, in her speech, finally, uh, the First Lady did address that, that issue rather, rather clearly. Uh, but as all finally came together with these tugs and pulls and... And um, threats. Uh, she did get there, and I think one of the most interesting things was nobody really knew what she was going to say. Her speech was very closely held by a very few people: uh, the president, a couple of her staff, etc. Um, and there were all kinds of queries of the White House press secretary at the time. Well, is she going to make news? Uh, what is this going to be about? And The answers were forthcoming in terms of, well, no, she won't make news. We just expect that this will be a reiteration of U.S. policy. Uh, And the reality was that when she got up to make that speech, and I can tell you as I sit here talking to you, uh, that it was one of those very, very tense moments for me because we thought, as as certainly the First Lady did, that she would make a statement that was important to be made on behalf of, of our country Um, But we didn't know how it would be received. And, you know, I could feel my heart fluttering a bit. Uh, And at first, it was a slow beginning. But as she got into that speech, and began to lay out the violations of human rights, which they indeed were, uh, from honor killings, to human trafficking, to you know, snuffing out the lives of, of babies just because they're born girls, uh, to domestic violence, to dowry burnings. Uh, there's just a whole plethora of egregious violations that were going on that, in many respects, still go on. But to say, as she did at that moment, each of them was a violation of human rights. And these, these rights fundamental, universal human rights had never been chiseled in terms of women's rights into international law. Uh, and so as she cataloged uh, these violations of human rights, as she called each one, as she punctuated each one, and then said that these, this is for us all to know that women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. And as she was articulating these rights, these violations of human rights. You could feel in the crowd those who felt the scourge in their own countries, those who had worked so hard to eliminate those violations, whether it's honor killings or dowry burning something we don't know that much about in our country, thankfully. Uh, but they had experienced and they had struggled against and they had often hit a concrete wall in trying to make progress. And here you had one of the most powerful women in the world representing the United States, saying these are indeed violations of human rights. Uh, And by the time she finished, there was a crescendo uh, so loud uh, and sustained applause uh, and a sense that she came and she said what had to be said. And she said it in a way nobody anticipated. And people came into this conference you know, some some countries in different places on different issues, not always united. But by the time we walked out after that speech, uh, there was a sense of real, uh, we were all in this together feeling and tremendous uh, sense that she had laid the issues out well. And indeed, uh, this speech that was not to have much impact or not to be anticipated to be uh, significant in any way, Uh, was labeled by one newspaper on the more liberal side as perhaps her greatest hour, uh, and the other saying, indeed, it was certainly her greatest achievement. So you had a sense of unity in our own country for those who were watching and caring, uh, no matter where they were on the political spectrum, and a sense coming out of the conference that this, indeed, had moved the envelope forward. Right.
1: Yeah, um, so after having done that tremendous speech, what was the impact of it? Like, I'm sure there are waves rippling across the world, but did you see any change after that speech? Well, yes
2: indeed, and in fact, we're still in many ways measuring our progress mm-hmm. on issues affecting women and girls, which we know are issues that affect all of society. Uh, but we measure our progress in some ways by the platform for action that was adopted by consensus, by all the countries that were represented, some 180 some countries. And it had to do uh, with access to education, to health, to participating fully in the economy of one's country, and politics, uh, to uh, enjoying legal rights that we were all entitled to, uh, and to be free from violence. And out of that conference came enormous actions uh, that continue to this day, but a lot of progress on issues like girls' education, for example,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, but violence against women. Many countries going into the co- uh, into the conference. Um, in fact, few uh, had laws against domestic violence. Say uh, today there are laws on the books in huge numbers. Now, to be honest, they're not always fully implemented and enforced, but it did have a tremendous impact. And that is one of those significant moments, I think, in the global human rights movement, certainly in the women's rights movement, uh, that really did advance the ball and give us uh, sort of guideposts for the work that needs to be done. And, and the anniversary um, from that conference in, in uh, 1995, mm-hmm. so in 2015, there were a lot of lookbacks at how much progress have we made Studies have been done, a lot of research on it. And indeed, you can uh, really document the progress. But that said, there's still a long journey to be made. Uh, In no country are men and women uh, equal in terms of the same rights. Um, There is a gap that's measured in lots and lots of studies. Uh, But the gap is being closed uh, more and more. And we know today... It's not just the right thing to do. It is a moral imperative, but it is also the smart thing to do. When all members of our society can participate uh, and enjoy the fullness of the rights that that are theirs as as human beings and make the contributions uh, with their talents and experiences and perspectives, the world is a much better place.
0: So your work on women's rights certainly did not stop there. So after leaving uh, the administration at the turn of the century, uh, you were the chair and co-CEO of an organization called Vital Voices. So first, for those who aren't as familiar uh, with Vital Voices, what is it? Where did it come from? What's the origin story there?
2: Well, it's true. Uh, You know, what you said about the impact of uh, the Beijing conference, certainly on me and I would say on the First Lady, was to really... uh, deeply touch us in ways that um, you realized we had to do more. We had to keep at this. Uh, And one of the things that our government did at the time was have a program called the Vital Voices Democracy Initiative. And it was about, particularly as the Soviet Union was collapsing, helping women in other parts of the world uh, to understand that as they were moving from command economies to market economies, as their countries were moving from um, autocratic uh, uh, world views and, and governments to uh, nascent democracies, that women had a role to play in all of this. And it was a way that Americans, men and women, on their own time through this program, uh, were volunteering uh, to be mentors, uh, to help women in other places, particularly in, initially in the former Soviet Union, Uh, to learn good communication skills, to understand the responsibility of citizenship in a democracy, to um, understand if you were interested in business, how do you start a small business. Um, And in the process of these efforts taking place, some of them starting with conventions or conferences in their own region and then blossoming out as that was happening networks among women were growing. Women who never knew each other, never knew that there were opportunities across their geographical borders where they could have uh, mentors or others like them who were trying to do the same kinds of things in their own country. Uh, And as the Clinton administration was coming to a close, they started asking, well, what's going to happen to us? Is this the end? Uh, It was really an initiative to to grow uh, and nurture Uh, women's leadership, uh, particularly emerging leadership, which our world desperately needs. Uh, And so uh, as a result of those pleadings, as a result of uh, the administration ending, um, we and largely uh, a lot of the responsibilities fell on me, um, started an NGO, a 501c3 nonprofit organization that was nonpartisan. Uh, In many respects, we had bipartisan leadership. Uh, We welcomed the the nonprofit communities that we worked with, as well as the private sector became engaged. Uh, Today, it's a very strong organization, the Vital Voices um, Global Partnership. Um, But I never intended, uh, when I started, uh, that I would spend eight years uh, trying to move the organization forward. but the inspiration of women in so many places, the risks they were taking, the work they were doing, uh, just had a, a sense of real urgency about it. Uh, and the reality was that, that we just kept plowing ahead. And I think uh, really can be uh, pleased as it continues to do its work uh, that so much has been achieved. Uh, but it all started as a small government program that was basically, um one that volunteers were tremendously engaged in and that the first lady led at the time.
1: Yeah. Um so as co-CEO and founder of this nonprofit, what was your role like? Like what was your day to day in the job?
2: Oh my gosh. You know, <laughs> one of the hardest things was raising money. Anybody who has tried yeah, to yeah. start a nonprofit yeah. um you know, wonders. We had I think two paid staff people and I wasn't one of them. Um, and I, I can remember distinctly one night I was on a trip to the West Coast and I couldn't sleep that night because I had realized we didn't really have the money in the bank to pay the salary uh, that was going to come due in a couple of weeks. We had uh, uh, wonderful uh, uh, offerings of space that was provided initially by another nonprofit. Uh, we had um, a tremendous Uh, support from people who really believed in the cause but it took a lot of work to to put it into place so that it could be you know one of those smooth running machines Uh, but I think the biggest thing was raising the money putting the kind of board together that could uh, have that kind of responsibility to be fully participatory Um, and then the programs were not an issue we knew what needed to be done we wanted to do all kinds of things to to, to grow this network uh, worldwide, uh, but really getting it off the ground in a way that it could be um, fully self-supporting. Uh, it's always a struggle in the nonprofit world, uh, and we we didn't really uh, have government funds, so we were dependent on on uh, the support of other individuals who believed in the cause, and Uh, the business community which was really supportive because the business community has come to understand that as it was uh, working to expand its markets emerging markets and invest in emerging markets if half the populations in those markets are not educated um, if uh, women's leadership is not tapped those business investments aren't going to do as well as they might otherwise so um, the many in the business community, particularly women who were um, moving into leadership ranks themselves, uh, realized this was a tremendously important investment.
0: So one one of the most powerful success stories, as we were talking before the show, uh, was women in Kuwait. And you're talking about how uh, they had a whole rally and cry together, and you really saw them grow during your time in in uh, Vital Voices. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Story? Oh,
2: that's a wonderful, wonderful uh, issue to raise. Um, The women in Kuwait uh, did not, uh, 20 years ago, have the right to vote or run for office. And they came in while we were still in government to see uh, the first lady and say to her, yes, we in Kuwait are very grateful for what the United States has done, but we have this great sense of urgency. Uh, We really are tired of being a skim milk democracy. We wanna be a full cream democracy. And if they were going to be a full cream democracy, it meant that women uh, would have the right to vote, which they didn't enjoy at the time, and would be able to run for office. And as as the years uh, went on, we really tried to help um, the Kuwaiti women who were very, very impressive um, uh, women who uh, were well-educated, really um, enthusiastic about trying to pursue Um, their their rights as they saw them in their country. And one of the things we did, for example, uh, through Vital Voices was uh, introduce them to communications uh, experts in our own country. We took a group of them to New York uh, one day, and I remember we were on the set of uh, Good Morning America. It wasn't when the show was going on, needless to say, Uh, but it was an opportunity for them to sit with some of the top Uh, people in the communications world who said to them, look, we know very little about Kuwait, we don't know what issues uh, you're raising, we don't know uh, what your culture makes possible or not possible, but when you're communicating with the public, here are some things you need to know. And the women went back to Kuwait and they had been arguing on this issue uh, that it was an issue of women's rights, which it truly was, but they hadn't gotten the traction they needed to ultimately prevail. And after they had a lot of these kinds of consultations, um, they changed their rallying cry, if you will, to the future of Kuwait. And it had such resonance uh, because young people realized they wanted a future uh, that was different. They wanted a more inclusive future. Uh, others came across their, their the political spectrum to join them. Uh, and ultimately, uh, women did uh, get the right to vote and when I was ambassador, so it was, you know, some years later, some 15, 18 years later, uh, they had the election and three of them initially won seats in the parliament. All three had PhDs, I might add. Wow. And uh, they were an amazing, amazing group of women. But it took that, that kind of sense that we're all in this together, helping each other across borders, Uh, one day I had brought um, some of the women to the State Department to do a a public briefing, as uh, we often did there, and one of them said to the audience, she said, you know, I have everything in life you would think one one could want. I have a wonderful family, a wonderful husband. I'm a full professor. I contribute to my society. Um, People look at me and think, Why does she struggle so much for the right to vote? And she said, this morning, I had the opportunity to go up to your Congress, which we had arranged. And she met with a Republican member of Congress, a woman, and a Democratic member of Congress. And they talked to her about issues that they had come across the aisle uh, to work on uh, for our own country. Title IX, women's health issues, issues. issues related to so many of the things that women care about that may never have gotten on the congressional agenda, like violence against women law, which we have a strong law. And she said to this audience, I said to myself, as I listened to them, that's what we want to be able to do in our country. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was one of so many experiences, and those experiences uh, continue throughout the world. And whatever we can do to support those kinds of efforts, I think are well worth doing.
1: Um, So moving on to your next position, um, then President Barack Obama appointed you to be the first uh, U.S. ambassador at large for global women's issues, where you directed the Office of Global Women's Issues at the State Department. So given that you were the first person to ever hold this post, what do you think is the importance of this appointment?
2: Well, it was really um, a position that uh, made the case uh, that these issues had to be integrated across all of the work of our diplomatic mission. You know, the State Department's engaged in economic pursuits, in regional issues from Africa to, uh, to through Asia, Latin America, et cetera, were involved in uh, trying to ameliorate conflicts and, and ensure stability, were involved in fighting human trafficking and, and human rights violations, Uh, And this wasn't a position, as was explained to me, the hopes for this position. It was not to have special programs, women's programs, Mm -hmm. uh, which are fine and good to do, but really to integrate the perspective of women, the participation of women in our programs throughout the mission of uh, the State Department from Washington to our embassies around the world. Um, and, And... When you look at any number of issues, that's what we strove to do. And the realization is we cannot possibly address some of those challenges that confront our country and our world today, Uh, whether they have to do with uh, the nature of democratic governance, whether they have to do with uh, peace and security issues or growing our economies or, um, or dealing with climate change. We need all of the talent uh, that that can be mustered on the on these issues, and no country can possibly get ahead if it leaves half of its people behind if it leaves half of its talent behind. Uh, we also know it's in our national interest in places where women's rights are denied or women are oppressed. those countries usually move into forms of instability and conflict and the the problems that that then, they pose to us are not insignificant. So so it is a win-win for America and a win-win for the world. And you can take any number of issues. For example, uh, we participate in a multilateral platform called APEC. It's the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. And that brings together uh, the private sector and government entities, uh, ministers, presidents, in fact, heads of state, uh, to look at ways that we can grow our respective economies and certainly regionally uh, across the, the Pacific. And I was asked by one of my colleagues, well, are, are you sending anyone to this meeting? And I said, well, I'm, I'm looking at the agenda for the annual meeting that year, which took place in Japan, and I don't see any issues related to women in the economy. And I don't get it because all the data shows that trillions of dollars or certainly billions of dollars are being lost in terms of growth in the region because the potential of women is not being tapped. And today uh, we have data uh, that grows by the day that shows how critical women's economic participation is to growing economies, to inclusive prosperity, uh, certainly to jobs creation. And as a result through a whole lot of effort, um, you know, I said, can we do anything about it? He said, well, you can come to Japan and make uh, a pitch to my fellow colleagues, the fellow ambassadors uh, from these 20-some economies, Uh, which I did. And slowly this came on the agenda. The following year, the United States headed up uh, APEC. We were the hosts, and we had the first ever Women in the Economy Summit under APEC. Uh, Resolutions were adopted to work to ensure uh, that the hurdles that women entrepreneurs confront uh, can be addressed from uh, access to capital, to market growth, etc. And today it's a very robust part of the APEC proceedings. Uh, A lot of work is going on in a lot of the member countries to really move this agenda because we know it matters to the economies of all the countries engaged. So that's what I mean by integration, really moving these issues in ways that can affect our overall policy considerations.
0: So some of the interesting work that you did also focused on liaising with female leaders of the Arab awakening that was happening around the same time. So could you elaborate a little bit on your work there? What your role was in working with these women? Oh well, yes, and and
2: it's um, it is so true. I I uh, I spent a good bit of time. I think I went to Egypt just weeks after the first, um, you know, Tahrir Square, square uh, uprising that took place. I met with some of the women, who had spent uh, literally decades working on issues to advance women in the country. I met with the younger women who were. Really feeling that great surge of uh, we did it because we were able to uh, really overthrow the government, and um, you know, now we're um, struggling to figure out what comes next. And one of my great concerns was as they had moved to a transitional military government at the time, uh, there was already an effort to undermine a lot of the progress not huge progress but progress nevertheless Uh, that had been made on a number of issues affecting women in egypt the council um, or the ministry for women was closed Uh, but more than that there were threats to some of the progressive steps that had been taken and and what i came to realize when particularly when i asked the younger women what will you do if these rights are no longer there if these um steps are no longer there uh, to support your futures and they said we'll go back to the square and it really struck me that while that was a tremendous undertaking there really wasn't a plan or an understanding there hadn't been opportunities to grow the kind of leadership uh, that needed to be grown uh, given how they were they had progressed uh, there Uh, and as a result you know we see that. This is not one of the, the Arab awakenings that really awaken change in a significant, systematic way uh, today. Uh, in fact, probably in none of the countries, but hopefully Tunisia, is still on a path, challenged as it is in many ways. Um, but having met with the women from that part of the world, um, and, and also with women from Tunisia, from Libya, uh, Etc. To understand what they were trying to do, what they were undergoing, the women in Tunisia, for example, had women's rights chiseled in their constitution, hmm. uh, and there were threats to that continuing to be the case. Wow. And they, they, as the constitution, um, constitu- constitution assembly was put together, really worked. Uh, There were efforts to undermine it. There were efforts to substitute equality with complementarity, and they fought it back because they had a strong movement. They came together, they worked together, um, and they were an example in many ways uh, to women across their borders. Uh, So it it was and continues to be uh, a really, um, a time where we can see uh, what hasn't been achieved largely but we can also see possibility. Uh, The institute that we have here at Georgetown uh, recently did uh, a significant uh, study on transitional justice in Tunisia, which is one of the issues that really has to be confronted and understood and implemented. Um, And uniquely, in many ways, the economic justice issues are part of that agenda.
1: Yeah. So one of your final projects as ambassador was the U.S. National Action Plan on Women, Peace, and Security, which was actually finally passed into law last year by Congress, which is awesome. Um, but could you tell us a little bit more about the work going into making that um, into reality?
2: Well, you know, many countries uh, had already passed so-called national action plans to um, move their countries uh to doing more through their diplomatic work, through their development work, through their militaries, uh, to ensure that women would be fully participatory uh, and that women would be protected uh, against the violence, particularly in so many of the civil wars today where rape is the uh, preferred tool of war. Uh, It is successful in creating divisions uh, in communities and and enabling Uh, the armed combatants to achieve their goals. Um, The United States did not have a national action plan, even though uh, many, many countries did, particularly in Europe. Uh, NATO had one, uh, the EU had one, um, and we had been doing some work. Uh, The Secretary, Secretary Clinton, uh, had just come back from uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, which has had a a horrific uh, civil... War going on for now almost two decades where sexual violence is, is, is just um, pervasive in unspeakable, in unspeakable ways that we can't even imagine uh, what some of the women go through there. And she had introduced a, um, a resolution in the Security Council that became significant uh, in the work that the Security Council had done uh, starting about 15 years ago. Uh, on a resolution that we refer to by a number today, 1325, but it really linked uh, peace and security to women, to women's mm-hmm. agency, uh, and twin pillars in a way that we have to recognize that women need to be protected from uh, this kind of violence, and over time, uh, seeing this uh, mass uh, rape, whether in a Bosnia or in other places, um as uh, uh, crimes against humanity that they represented or genocide as took place in Rwanda, et cetera. Uh, but also uh, to see the agency of women, that women needed to be part of the peace processes. They need to engage in the negotiations. They needed to be part of the recovery as countries were coming out of conflict. And in, in that respect, uh, why shouldn't the united states have our own plan and commitment uh, to make a difference in this space act because after all uh, we saw ourselves and were uh, the leaders um, in the free world mm-hmm. uh, and making this this case uh, certainly was an important one and so it was adopted and in fact uh, the president issued an executive order to accompany it to say that going forward the united states in our diplomatic work and our development work uh, in our military work that we would be informed by the perspectives of women and in engaged uh, women's uh, participation uh, that we would do our work differently hopefully um, and and when the secretary of state uh, was launching that uh, plan for the united states she actually came to georgetown Uh, to announce it. So it was launched here uh, at Georgetown, and she put forward the case uh, for why this is important to do. And at the same time, uh, the powers that be here at the university were contemplating really making a difference in terms of the leadership of this great global university on these kinds of issues. Uh, And the secretary was very encouraging about the need to create that evidence-based case to demonstrate why this just isn't a nice thing to do, why it's not just an option, but that it really is a necessity uh, for the kind of world we all want to see, for enjoying greater possibilities of ending hostilities and uh, creating peace. Uh, And that ultimately led uh, to the creation of uh, the Institute for Women,
0: Peace, and Security. all comes back to Georgetown, doesn't it? Everything begins and ends at Georgetown. Love it. Great. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, so we're going to do one final segment. Uh, it's one of our favorites. Of crowd-pleaser. Uh, it's called the Lightning Round. Oh, dear. Uh, so we're going to ask you three questions, and you just the first answer that comes to mind uh, in, like, a sentence or two, how you would answer it. Uh, so I'll go first. So your previous ambassador position uh, has still not been filled by this administration, so would you ever want to go back to the State Department and direct the Office of Global Women's Issues again?
2: Well, I think there's plenty of talent in this country, and... Uh, I have done uh, the job, I've been privileged to do it, but there's so many others who could fill this uh, in, a, in a really important way. And most importantly, I hope the administration will fill this position uh, because it, there's a large role that we can play.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so tough question, but out of the three roles we just talked about, Chief of Staff, CEO, and Ambassador, which one did you enjoy the most?
2: Oh, that's too hard to do. It's like saying, which of your children uh, do you enough. favor most? Uh, but I, it was really extraordinary for me to be involved in all of those. And in many ways, what I'm doing today is just a continuation.
0: Okay. Final question, uh, because this is the Institute of Politics and Public Service. So with the 2018 midterm uh, election cycle and the 2020 election cycle, would you consider working on or with a campaign to advance a lot of these women's issues? Well, you
2: know, I was thinking walking up across the campus today for this podcast that as a freshman here at Georgetown, one of the first things I did was stand on Key Bridge with a placard for somebody who was running for Congress uh, from Arlington, from the, the Virginia Congressional District, uh, urging drivers as they were going over the bridge, something that seems absolutely crazy today. Uh, to vote accordingly. Uh, So I've always been engaged in politics. I've cared about it. I hope we elevate it and not demean it. Uh, And I do think these elections are important. And given we've been talking about women's participation, today there are more women, even young women, uh, running for office. Uh, It is extraordinary at all levels to see the interest. So may that continue, and may they win.
0: Fantastic.
1: Yeah, great. Um, so that wraps up the podcast. Thank you so much for being on. It was a pleasure having you.
2: Well, thanks to both of you. Of uh, yeah. uh, And may the podcast also <laughs> continue to go forward. <laughs> we hope so. We hope yeah,
0: so. Yeah,
1: you.
2: And all the best.
0: Thank you so much for listening to our interview with Milan Revere. Uh, That was, I I hope you agreed, one of the more interesting things that we've ever done here on Fly on the Wall. Hit on just so many issues and and, and topics we don't usually talk about.
1: Yeah, Milan was awesome, and she's definitely one of my role models. I work at her research institute, so she is absolutely amazing, and I hope you agree. And uh, this is the last episode of the season. Aww. I know, so sad. So we'll see you guys next January for our big season five opener.
0: Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, and have a Happy New Year. And and Happy Kwanzaa and whatever else you happen to be celebrating this holiday season.
1: And we'll see you in January.